Hey, good morning, church. Before you take a seat, I just want to invite you to turn to someone nearby and let's greet each other and say good morning. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, So good to see everyone out here on another cold uh, day. Um, But uh, it's great to have everyone together. And uh, for those of you who are joining us online and our streaming platforms, welcome to you as well. And uh, we are just uh, thrilled to have everyone together today. If you're here as a visitor or a guest, special welcome to you. There's uh, information at the welcome table about different things that are coming up. Uh, You should have got a bulletin on your way in and uh, you can see what's, uh, what's going on in there as well. And uh, there'll be more information at the end of the service about some upcoming events. Um, so uh, let's just pray now, and uh, we're going to open up God's Word together. So, Lord, we thank you for this good morning. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the chance again to uh, gather together, to sing songs of worship, to exalt your great name. And, Lord, for you to do that work in our hearts of, uh, Lord, just showing us uh, more of yourself Lord, challenging us, Lord, to see you for who you are so that we might be changed in your presence. Uh, Lord, uh, we pray now as we open up your word that you would open up our hearts, that our lives would reflect more in the likeness of Jesus Christ uh, from the inside out. So we pray this in his great name. Amen. You know, uh, repetition has proven to be a very powerful teaching tool. The idea is that if something is worth saying, then it's probably worth repeating. And so I'll prove how good a teaching tool it is. So I'll say it again. If something is worth saying, it's worth... You see, it worked. Yes. Um, The reality is, though, it often takes time for things to sink in, right? We all get that. Every parent understands this. The the, 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 the universal question asked by parents around the world is the question, how many times do I have to tell you, right? We all know the answer. The answer is you're going to need to tell us a lot. It's going to take time. Be prepared to repeat the same things over and over again, and eventually it may start sinking in. Repetition is used in many uh, platforms, and it's been something that pop music has kind of understood and perfected in many ways, just saying the same things over and over again. So uh, one example is the prog rock group from the 70s, Yes. Um, They were known throughout the 70s as this epic group that played these classic, classically motivated songs with intricate orchestrations and incredible musicianship, and, uh, and no one ever questioned their talent, but their mass appeal was kind of limited because their songs were so dense, so long, and so intricate. They happened to be my favorite band back in my college days, and so 
Uh, there was a few times where I drag a few of my friends to a Yes concert. And in the middle of the show, one time I clearly remember turning to my friend. I am just like having such a good time. I turn to my buddy and I say, how do you like it? What do you think? And he said, when is this song going to end? <laughs> but, uh, but then in 1983, in the middle of the 80s, this group reinvented themselves and uh, they tightened everything up and they released this song called Owner of a Lonely Heart. Now, to those of you, there's no one here, but some of you may be uh, Yes fans, um, we call it Owner. That's how it's just, it's just owner. It's not owner of only heart because that phrase gets repeated 26 times. I actually counted it on the way here. I listened to it 26 times, owner of a lonely heart. And, um, and that song, in the course of four minutes, became their one and only number one hit. So that's the power of repetition. Say it and then say it again. And and that's pretty much what the main idea of the passage that we're looking at this morning is all about. Uh, We've been making our way through the Gospel of Mark in a series called The Journey. And uh, Mark is taking us on this journey of discovering who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. And we have seen um, over the course of many weeks how challenging it was for Jesus' first followers to comprehend who he was, and what he was all about. And so uh, at the end of chapter 10, which is where we're at this morning, Jesus is going to go back and tell them again some of the things that he's already spoken to them. He's going to repeat some of the truths again. And and maybe as we look through it, there's going to be some things that we need to hear about again as well, because the truth is sometimes what we really need is not to hear something new, Most times, we need to hear again and review what we've already heard so we can let it sink deeper into our hearts and so it can be reflected in greater ways in our lives. And so that's where we're at this morning. If you have a Bible, you can open it up to Mark chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 32. And if you've been around, it may sound like deja vu all over again. So uh, here's how it starts. It says, then they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days, he will rise. So, so this is the third time that Jesus is intentionally telling his disciples about what to expect when the next act opens. Uh, because up to this point, it hadn't sunk in with his disciples. The first time he said it was after, Jesus, after Peter made that, that good confession. He was the first one to make that, that, that good confession that Jesus is the Christ. And if you remember Jesus' immediate response, he clarified that the journey of the Christ wasn't leading to a throne. It was leading to a cross. It was leading to suffering and and rejection, to being murdered, and on the other side of that then to to resurrection. And if you recall, that that didn't sit too well with, with Peter. He had no paradigm for this idea of a suffering Savior. 
And so Jesus repeated it a second time. And, and the second time, um, he added a little more detail. He explained that he was going to actually be delivered into the hands of men. So he was going to be betrayed. And, and, and that ultimately the men he would be betrayed to were going to kill him. But then again, at the end of that, after three days, he would rise again. And, and it said after that that they still did not understand the saying and they were afraid to ask him. So it's still not sinking in. They're still not getting it. So here we are for the third time and the final time he is going to, to, to tell them what to expect. And this time he tags the location. He says this This next scene is set to open up inside the royal city of Jerusalem. And this time, he he dives a little deeper into the details. And, you know, the details he's sharing here, they're somewhat disturbing, right? That the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the Jewish religious leaders' hands, and and they're going to condemn him to death, and then they're going to hand him over to the Gentiles, and The Gentiles are going to mock him and spit on him and flog him and then kill him. That's that's not a pretty picture. But the ending is still the same. He assures them that after that, after three days, that he's going to rise. See, the disciples, they still don't have a clue about what Jesus has in mind to do. And maybe they're hoping at this point that When he says this stuff about suffering, we're just going to ignore him. We're going to laugh and politely just turn away. And maybe he'll forget about that. But but Jesus wouldn't budge. He keeps on coming back to it. He keeps on dropping this reality right onto their laps in a way that they cannot dismiss. They can't get away from it. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die the most brutal and violent death you can imagine But I want you to know up front, right here, right now, that this showdown that's coming and everything that's about to happen, none of it is happening by accident. None of this is taking me by surprise. This is the very heart of the reason why I came. You see, Jesus is making it clear that he came to exercise his ultimate authority over humanity's ultimate enemy. He came to defeat death. And that victory would be won at the highest price imaginable. It would cost the sinless son of God his very life. But the point is this, is that death was not going to have the final say. As horrible and as brutal as that next scene was going to get, it wasn't the end of the story. Resurrection and ultimate victory was going to follow. And so you may not like it, you may not understand it, but you can't get away from this reality. There's there's simply no way to comprehend who Christ is apart from his suffering, apart from what he did on the cross. People try to do this, um, to deny this reality that Jesus came to die. He came to give up his life. He didn't just come to teach us some nice moral sayings, some some positive inspirational quotes that we can just add onto our our life. He, He didn't come just to be an example for us. He came to die. And in so doing, to destroy death itself. And so 
Jesus is reminding us about that, to grasp that. Until we can grasp this, this image of Jesus' beaten down body hanging on the cross with, with a crown of thorns pressed into his swollen head, blood dripping down onto the ground where the crowds would mock him in disgust and understand as, as the song that we often sing that that cross meant to kill is our victory, right? That, that his death on that cross is the reason why we don't have to look at a gravestone and say, death, you won. You write the final chapter. It's because of his death, because of his resurrection, that we can proclaim the same words that St. Paul wrote in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 5. He says, death has been swallowed up in victory. He says, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the question that challenges us to ask is, do I get it? Do I comprehend the cross? Do I have a hope like that set deeply in my heart? Can I audaciously stare into the face of death with that confidence and know that it is a defeated foe? That is what Jesus came to do. He wants to make sure we know that. Don't miss that one. There's a second message that Jesus repeats to his followers, and that one is to, is to strive after serving. Now, now, again, this is stuff he said already, but he's repeating it. He's saying it again, and, and, and we're going to see why, because in this next scene, this next passage is going to make all too clear that Jesus' disciples needed to hear this again. Here's what it says. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, the disciples, despite everything they've heard, despite everything they've watched, despite everything they've listened to Jesus say, their lives are still dialed into procuring positions of power. They want the positions. And in their paradigm, getting to the top is what it's all about. And so there's these uh, sons of Zebedee, these brothers, James and John, and they try a power play on Jesus. They try to pull one over on Jesus to secure the top spots in Jesus's uh, cabinet that they see coming. And so they try to trick Jesus into promising this to them. 
And you got to give them credit for trying, right? They've really tried. They say, Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. They're saying, first, Jesus, give us your unconditional promise that you'll do that, and then we'll tell you what we want you to do. Jesus is like, nice try, you know? No, no, it's going to work the other way around. First, you tell me what you want me to do for you. And they're busted, right? They're exposed. They say, all right, we want to be your number one and your number two. And at the end of the day, Jesus' answer is no. His answer is no. I am not going to do for you whatever you want me to do. Please take note of that, that there are times when the answer is no. Sometimes we can think that God didn't answer my prayer. He didn't do what I asked him to do. Jesus answers every prayer. God answers every prayer. And sometimes his answer is no, because he's not Santa, right? Don't confuse Jesus Christ for Santa Claus, right? Two very different people. He is not there to cater to our whims. He does give us what aligns around his will. And that's a very important point of clarity. James and John, first of all, they have no idea what they're asking. They have no clue because they don't see what's coming next. And Jesus, he says, when you're glorified, can we be to your right and to your left? And and this is a little bit of a foreshadowing because where is Jesus going to be glorified? On a cross. And sitting, standing, hanging from his right and his left, there's going to be two people. Thank God it wasn't James and John. It was two criminals. Jesus like, you guys... You still got a lot to learn. Uh, I got other plans for you, uh, so let's keep on going. But in the meantime, the other disciples, they hear what's going on, and and they're not too happy about this move that the brothers Zebedee are trying to pull on them. You know, it only takes the the tracest amounts of selfishness to kickstart all kinds of serious conflict. Things can blow up so quickly. But before things come to blows, Jesus calls the whole crew of them together. He says, guys, let's, let's go over this again. We've been through this before. Let's go over it again. You haven't got it yet. And he tells them, when you're doing life with me at the lead, this is not the way it works. This is not what it's about. Instead of chasing after positions of power, chase after opportunities to serve. He said it before, but he's saying it again. Redirect selfishness into serving. And so anytime we get that whiff of selfishness, whether it be in ourselves or if it's in someone else, take that as your cue to look for a place to serve. And you know, on a very pragmatic level, right? when we look at the relational conflicts that we work through and the stress and the drama and the conflict, how much of that could be adopted by just just adopting that kind of simple strategy? Look for an opportunity to serve. What needs to be done? What can I do? Where is there a need that I can jump into? Um, Some of you guys know my friend Danny, uh, who's uh, preached here, and he's been a ministry partner of mine for, for several years. And and uh, he, was, he was, a time ago, he was getting into church planting, and our district had a requirement to do that. He had to go to this conference, a church planting conference, a training sessions that he had zero desire to go to, right? 
He knew that. And so a week before the conference was set to start, he, he reached out to the guy who was leading the training thing. And he called them up and he says, when are you getting there? Because I need to get there early and I need to do whatever you need. If you need help with any details, I want to do it. If you need help making food, I want to make the food. If you need help making copies, I want to make the copies. If you need someone to run to the store and do the errands, whatever it is for this conference to run smoothly, let me do that. I need to nip this selfishness, this hardness of heart in the bud. And the easiest way to do that and to destroy the selfishness is with serving. It's a great strategy. Jesus reminds us again that there's this correlation between serving and significance that he calls greatness. In other words, there's nothing great about living a self-indulgent, self-absorbed life. Look at me. See how great I am. It's, it's shallow, it's, it's hollow, it's lonely, and it's meaningless. And we see examples of this every day, don't we? Like, just look at uh, what our culture calls celebrity culture, right? The more of the spotlight you get, seems like the more messed up you become. Greatness is, is not found in searching out the spotlight. It's, it's found in acts of selfless service. Locate a need and jump into it. And Jesus says, I'm setting the mold for you in this one. He reminds them, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There's a sacrifice involved in it. Jesus paid that price. And he's saying, you go ahead and do likewise. In other words, there was nothing about what Jesus did in living his life and going to the cross that he did it for himself. He didn't do it for him. He did it all for us. And he says, okay, you're next. Keep on going. I want to let you know, we've had a, a bit of an emphasis this uh, year. Uh, in January, we, we tried to just spend time on spiritual renewal. And we had that uh, time of fasting and prayer. Um, uh, January was that. February, we've been trying to just work on marriage relationships. And that's been great. We had a really nice time this past Friday night. Um, March, though, is going to be a month of serving. And so we are going to look for opportunities to just find places where we can, as a body of Christ, jump into and serve. Some of these opportunities may be in our own church family. There's a lot of needs. But we're also looking at opportunities outside in the community. Uh, so we can really embody this and, uh, and keep on moving forward with, uh, with serving and significance and and, um, and so the passage here is going to wrap up with one final thing that we have seen before, um, a final healing um, that, uh, that Mark wrote down in his gospel. And, and we've seen quite a few healings up to this point. Um, in this scene, the emphasis is just as much on who it is that Jesus heals as it is on the healing itself. So let's read. And it says this, and they came to Jericho and as, as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. 
And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. There's, there's a pattern that we've been picking up on as we've been making our way through Mark that those in close proximity to Jesus don't always see people the way Jesus does. Uh, earlier in the same chapter, people were bringing children to Jesus, and the disciples started rebuking them. In their estimation, children weren't the kind of important people that uh, someone like Jesus ought to be investing his time with, right? They, they still have their mindset set on an earthly king, and so they're thinking there are probably some strategic alliances that need to get set up with some very influential people, maybe people like the rich young ruler. We looked at his story last week. And you know what? That move of not allowing the children to come to Jesus, that ticked him off. Uh, he hears that turning, they're turning children away, and it says in verse 14 that he was indignant. He is red hot about that. He is just hopping mad, nostrils flaring. And then followed by that is this conversation that, uh, that we looked at last week between Jesus and, 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 and the rich young ruler, that Jesus just lets walk away. And you don't do that in that day. The, the disciples are shocked. This was an influential guy. This is the kind of person that they thought we need him on our team. But here's the thing. See, after you've created the universe, after you've existed in eternity as the ultimate authority and the object of unceasing adoration from myriads of angels, it must just be kind of hard to be impressed with people and their delusions of grandeur and their ambitions to jump into seats of power, right? Jesus' followers, they were still working on that one. And truth be told, we are too. We're so impressed by things that Jesus isn't so impressed with. Uh, this blind man hears that Jesus is passing by, and he cries out for help, and it says that many rebuked him. You know, be quiet. Shut up, blind man. Stop making a racket. The marginalized don't matter to them. They're... They're into the movers and the shakers, the, the people who are in the middle, not the margins. And, and what I love is that he doesn't listen to them. He, he ignores them. He keeps on crying out. And when Jesus hears his cry, we found out that this man in the margins matters, matters to Jesus. He makes the time for a blind man, someone who can do nothing for him, someone who comes with nothing but need. You know, that challenges us. It causes us to question in our hearts today is, um, are we inviting people like that in to meet Jesus, or are we somehow just shutting them out and shutting them down? See, there's no such thing as an insignificant individual to Jesus. What a person's social status is or what it's not, that has zero bearing on whether he welcomes them or not. 
Remember when James and John, they asked Jesus to do for them whatever they ask so they can satisfy their own selfish ambitions. And Jesus' answer is what? No. But look at this. When blind Bartimaeus, he asked the question, Jesus asked the question to him. What do you want me to do for you? So he does for Bartimaeus what he was unwilling to do for his disciples. And, and, and Bartimaeus answers, he says, let me recover my sight. Jesus is like, yeah, I'm all about that. Healing, restoring, once again, picking up the pieces, the broken down pieces of broken down people living in a broken down world, putting them together. That's something he's into. So the answer is no when it's about indulging our own selfish desires, but his answer is yes to healing, to wholeness, to to restoration, because that is the Jesus agenda. This is his will. This is what he is all about, restoration, restoring people's lives, restoring this world back to the way God originally designed it to be. Jesus is in the business of making all things new. And so often, it's those who are out there on the margins, not the ones who are in the middle. They're the ones who are aware of their own brokenness, of their need for help, and are willing to ask them. Bartimaeus was his name. See, this this blind man that everyone else wanted to just push away and dismiss, he has a name. The rich young ruler didn't get named in the Gospel of Mark, but Bartimaeus does. Mark shares that name with us. And, um, you know, this previously blind man, his name is Bartimaeus. He, he comes from a family. His father's name is Timaeus. That's, that's a way not only of dignifying him, which it does, but there's also a good chance that Mark writes that name because the people he was writing this gospel to originally, they may have known him personally. Bartimaeus may have been one of those highly um, valuable people in their local church, part of their church fellowship. Either way, what it does say is that the moment he recovered his sight, that he followed Jesus. He joined the tribe. He found a place to belong. And so Bartimaeus' story, the way that this whole story wraps up, it's kind of like a metaphor for Jesus' followers. Are we getting it? Do we see it? The, the, the metaphor, it started with, with the deaf hearing and it ends with uh, the blind seeing and it's kind of meshing this both together. Has our spiritual sight been restored? Um, do we see what it means to follow Jesus as our Lord and Savior? Are we seeing ourselves? Are are we seeing each other? Are we seeing the world around us the way Jesus does? He keeps on telling us who he is. He keeps on telling us what he's all about. He keeps on showing us that the ways of this world, this uh, ambition and and positions and power and important things, these things are, are meaningless and transitory. But this kingdom that he has come to build, this is going to last. This is eternal. This is what matters. And he keeps on reminding us until we see how much it matters, until we finally get it.
And so that's our hope. That's, our, that's, that's what's before us this morning, to see more clearly, to hear what maybe up to this point, we just have had a deafness, just a tone deafness to the things of God. And so may we continue on in our walk with him with more of a sensitivity, more of an understanding to the things that matter to him. Let's pray together. Lord,